Adam Block, PhD, is a recurring guest, having spoken previously about common misconceptions about the Affordable Care Act and Medicare for All. Today, we discuss how erring on the side of an earlier end to shelter in place could have a worse impact on the economy than waiting longer to return to work. We also discuss what a return to work could possibly look like and when can we expect our elective patients to start coming back to our offices. In our industry and many others, it's going to be important to be able to pivot and adapt to the new needs created by this virus. From a public health perspective, we also talk about when the risk of poverty as a social determinant of health starts to outweigh the risk of the coronavirus itself and what populations are at highest economic risk. Dr. Block is currently an assistant professor of public health at the School of Health Sciences and Practice at New York Medical College. He is a health economist with deep experience in the hospital, health plan, and government sectors. His research is focused on how individuals make decisions in healthcare markets, including patient choice of hospitals, physicians, and insurance plans. Prior to joining New York Medical College in 2017, he worked for a major hospital system, a large Medicaid-managed care plan, and spent several years developing the legislation on the Affordable Care Act as an economist at the Congressional Joint Committee on Taxation and later as Division Director of Health Plan Policy in the Center for Consumer Information and Insurance Oversight at CMS. In July 2018, Dr. Block founded Charm Economics, a translational economics consulting group. His consulting work focuses on managed care contracting and practicing optimization of new technology and data analytics. Dr. Block received his PhD in health policy from Harvard and his undergraduate degree in neuroscience from Amherst College. He can be found on Twitter at Adam B. Health Econ and at charmeconomics.com. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block. Adam Block, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Brad. May I call you Brad? Dr. Block to you, actually. Uh, you recently wrote an article for Modern Healthcare that discusses the economic advantage of a longer period of sheltering in place. Can you elaborate on what you discussed in that article? Sure. We did, sure. Uh, I worked with uh, my colleague, Ira Bedzo, who is a bioethicist at New York Medical College. And what we talked about was basically the issue that if trying to make a decision between opening up now or sheltering in place for a longer period of time is better to err on the side of sheltering in place for a longer period of time. And the reason for that is that sheltering in place has lots of costs associated with it, and most of those costs are economic costs. And government is very well-versed, hasn't seemed so good at it now, but is, is pretty able to deal with the economic costs of sheltering in place. It's really the fact that people can't work, so they have no income, And government literally prints the money and can take out huge loans in the orders of trillions of dollars and can distribute that money to lots of people. However, if we stop sheltering in place too soon and there is no vaccine, there is no cure for COVID-19, and it has an incredibly high mortality rate uh, and is incredibly contagious... There's basically nothing that you can do to stop it. So government is not very good at curing these things. Uh, It doesn't know how to do that. 
So we, when you have to make this decision, we should err on the side of sheltering in place longer because there's only an economic cost to that. So are you saying that we need to shelter in place until there's a vaccine? So no, I don't think I'm saying that we should shelter in place until there's a vaccine. I think the best estimates are that there's going to be a vaccine somewhere between 12 and 18 months. But in reality, that means that's when the vaccine starts being distributed. And we're talking about a country of 330 to 350 million people. It's not going to be overnight that all those people get inoculated from this. So I don't think I'm saying that we have to stop economic activity until this is until there's a vaccine available because that's going to be one to two to even three years. I think what I'm saying is is that if you're deciding on whether you're going to open something in the immediate future or whether you want to wait it a little longer, it is better to err on the side of waiting a little bit longer until you have more information. So then how do we decide when? You know, I guess I guess as a, as a, as an economist it's not really uh, a fair question. Sure. Um, but no, but how is. do you decide? It, it is a fair question, and it's a really hard question. Now, this is a, a question that I certainly don't know the answer to. But I think waiting a little bit longer is a fair thing to do. The, the, the other thing is that I think a lot of times, and I've seen a resurgence of this as New York has just recently, I believe, crested and come over the crest and is beginning to reduce the total number of new infections. And I think the mortality rate is still very, very high, but the new deaths are um, de- deaths are declining a little bit. And so people are starting to think, okay, if the worst is over, can we get back to it? And the, the fact is the worst is over because we have successfully been socially distancing in New York. Unclear whether that's how much that's happening in the rest of the country, but I, I you know, it's, it's pretty clear that it's happening in New York. So it, it's not clear when we can go back to certainly a normal economy. So that remains really pretty vague. Well, you know, let's take a step back because, you know, in, in terms of spread of the disease, right, clearly it's better to err on the side of sheltering in place. But what you're saying is economically, it makes sense to err on the side of sheltering in place longer rather than shorter. But but then that the economy is going to take more of a hit. So how do you justify that hit to the economy with longer sheltering in place? Like sure. I, I, there, I, there, there's very little evidence. So there's very little evidence on what's going to happen to the economy. And I think what we're seeing right now is a mass panic because literally company, you know, companies are just shutting their doors. Uh, many for the last time because uh, you know in they didn't think a month ago that this was going to be happening or two you know certainly not two months ago they were they were doing very well what we've seen is you know essentially economic devastation that hasn't really hit in a huge way yet in other words people have lost their jobs but they haven't gotten evicted. They haven't lost their jobs for that long because this has only been a a short period of time. I think the most uh, overwhelming numbers that I have seen are the unemployment numbers. And I I looked at an unemployment graph and I worked for Congress uh, during the recession of 2008, 2009, 2010. And what you saw was that there were unemployment numbers that were coming out where people were basically asking the states for unemployment checks, right? Filing for unemployment. And the numbers range in February, they were in early February, they were around 200,000. The highest points in the last 30 to 40 years, they were up to 700,000 a week. 
So the range was pretty stable. A recession was 700,000 a week, or maybe five to 700,000 a week. And good times of unemployment was two to 300,000 people filing for unemployment a week. And then all of a sudden, COVID-19 hits and it's three million a week. Three million a week. It is just astronomically higher than anything else that the U.S. has seen. And it's week after week after week. It's not like it was just one week. So it's unclear to me what happens to me after all of this occurs and how people go back to work. That said, if we just open the doors and say, and the governors, all the governors band together and say, congratulations, it's over. We've beaten it. I'm not saying that that is the truth, but if they all said that, we would know that it wasn't the truth. And I don't think that you and your family or me and my family or our parents would start going to the movies or going out to eat or going to baseball games or doing any of these things so quickly. So just because we, quote unquote, open the economy, in other words, it is now legal for non-essential workers to go back to work, it doesn't mean that those businesses that may open their doors are actually going to be successful. The question is, how do you do this in a way that is both safe so that when they eventually do open their doors, we can you know, feel comfortable going to a restaurant and is also good for the economy? Because the worst thing would be if you have these grand reopenings, you spend a lot of money on those, people come back and then there is a worse, basically, resurgence than there ever was in the first place because this thing is still quite rampant. So you're saying the economic disadvantage of opening up early would be the trepidation of people to actually make their way out and patronize those stores and businesses, coupled yes. with a resurgence of the virus, coupled with it's, a second spike in cases. Yes. Yeah, it's going to be three things. And that's a nice way to break it down, Dr. Block. That <laughs> it, Basically, oh, you like hearing me say that, don't you? <laughs> I make mom and dad call me that too. I have to call them by their titles. So they have to call me by mine. So uh, yeah, I don't do that because uh, I'm not pretentious. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so it's three things. Number one is that people aren't going to feel safe. So nobody's going to go to patron these businesses. Two is that the employees are not going to feel safe. And so they are not going to necessarily want to work at these businesses. And three, you have the the third thing that you said, which was that it's just not going to happen in terms of people aren't going to be entering the the businesses. So then how do we how do we open up the economy in an effective way such that, you know, we've got seven million in unemployment, right? Yeah. All of a sudden, all at the same time, which you know, as terrifying as that number is, I think it's in some ways it's it's manufactured because it all happened at the same time, right? Like it wasn't like dominoes where one business fails and then another one fails and then another, every single business just closed their doors at the same time. So, you, you know, inevitably you're going to have a, a huge spike like that. And many of these businesses will be able to open up their doors and will be able to start employing people again, right? But how is that done in the most effective way? Right, I've got my ideas about it. I would think that the lower, the lowest risk businesses should be first, right? Like, allow people to go to the beach again, right? It's it's going to be tough to 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 spread the infection in an outdoor setting where social distancing is naturally part of what happens. That's, I mean, not much money is turned over at the beach, but but you get the idea. Like golf courses, how many people are going? Yeah, you know things like uh, that uh, where there's there's social distancing and it's outdoors and it's and it's summer is coming like it's naturally part of it. That's what I would think. 
But what yeah, are, what uh, is the what do the economists think? What do you think? Yeah. So I I think right. I think what you're trying to prevent is resurgence, and I think what we're going to have is uh, hopefully lots of basically very rapid intelligence happening that will be able to re-implement like extreme social distancing. In other words, I want I, I think what we're going to see is we're going to gradually open things up slowly. And I'll I'll give a couple of examples. And then if we see s- small spikes happening in local EDs or from physicians offices, um, and I think public health workers, I think you know county public health offices are going to open up and start expanding and requesting reports from lots of physicians' offices and certainly from the hospitals um, so that they can really do, and certainly at the state level, um, do a good job of monitoring this to see where there are local hotspots and then when there are local hotspots, like basically close the schools again, shut things down. The, the, The things that I expect to happen, what I'd like to see happen is right now, um, your kids are not playing with any other kids, right? None. My kids are not playing with any other kids. You know, we're not seeing people, we're walking past them on the street. And in fact, on Facebook, uh, I see a whole bunch of people getting yelled at for like running too close to someone else. So the first thing that we're going to see is some of that, the relaxation of some of that. In other words, before businesses can open, right? Like, because what we're talking about for non-essential businesses is like, clothing stores, right? Like my kids' sweatpants are all getting holes in them and I would like to get them replaced. And that would be nice. But I think before you do that, right, which is a broad public environment, I tell think them, you need to- Tell them to be more careful because those someday will be my kids' sweatpants. <laughs> I know your family and you would not accept the sweatpants that are in the <laughs> state that uh, that these sweatpants are in. But basically, you know, you, you need to open up to, you know, small gatherings of like 10 people. And that those closed circle, you know, those circles should be relatively closed. And then, you know, experiment with that for a couple of weeks, not one week, but probably two or three weeks. And then, you know, businesses need to make, you know, accommodations. So for example, barbershops are all closed, right? My hair is a mess. And for me, that's saying a lot. And so what you can do is like, you know, a barbershop is really just a one-on-one activity, right? Now it's, 10 or 15 people, but you could say, okay, the barbershop is going to be one person. They're going to wear, you know, the barber has to wear an N95. Yeah, social distancing, right? Like every other uh, chair can be filled and you have to make an appointment. So there's like not more than a certain number of people waiting at a given time. Nobody in the waiting room, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. There there are ways to do that and keeping these business intact. And the, the other thing that I think that's going to happen or that at least should happen that I haven't really seen starting, but uh, but it, there's no reason that it shouldn't happen is that there should be a whole bunch of small startups that are attuned to all of these things that are you know popping up to help your business to adapt to this. Yeah. And the other thing that's going to happen from an economic perspective is this stuff is expensive, right? Having an N95 and having no waiting rooms and all that stuff. So we should see an increase in prices. Now, this is not a bad thing. This is fully appropriate. If my barber can only do, instead of doing you know 25 haircuts a day, can only do 12 haircuts a day, he should be able to increase the price. And he has to wear you know, an N95, a new N95 and a gown for all the, you know, that should all be built into the price. And that's fully okay, right? That's a you know how he did. He he just has to get rid of the barber pole and call it a salon. Rename is no longer a barbershop; it's a salon. He can triple his prices. Done. Well, I don't know that I'd go to. What what do you go to? 
you, you just you just do your own hair, don't you? No, I, I do. I do go to a barbershop. I am not consistent at all. One of my partners said, you have three kids under four. How do you get your hair cut? I said, I go twice a year. Because I realized the last time I got my hair cut was when my last son was born. And he is not. <laughs> so I, I currently get my hair cut twice a year. So I get it really short and then I let it grow. Oh, I did the opposite. I went way more. <laughs> I was like, oh, sorry. Four I need, weeks. I, I need a break. I need a break. I need to get, I gotta get out of here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, but that's a good point. Like the economy, this is, I guess, everything's in, bars, everything's in shock right now, right? Like your, you know, your practice, physician practices, you know, first, the, the, probably the first thing that's going to open up is everybody has delayed their physician's appointments, right? Yeah. Now, I would imagine that as like, First, you are an essential worker, so you can go back. So the choices that have been made have been made by the organizations rather than by the state. And that's actually a perfect example of why just like opening up for business is not a good idea because nobody, your your patients are not coming because they're scared of getting sicker, yes. right? They're going to the physician's office to get less sick, not sicker. So they have to feel comfortable with this. So, so essentially retrofitting all of these offices in a way and coming up with operations to do that, I think is has to be a um, you know has to be the first step, and I think that's a private sector issue because and what you're going to see, I would imagine, is some you know some private sector organizations that are able to do this are are better at it. What I'm concerned about is I don't see the schools thinking about this at all, because to me the schools are the key to all of this. Like I started taking this much more seriously when the schools said we are closing, and. Uh, you know, and I think everybody is looking to like, when are the schools going to reopen and the schools need to be a little bit more flexible. So for example, if your kid has a class of 25 people that meets six hours a day, and now it has a class of 25 people that meet zero hours a day, you know, would it be better if they had a class of 12 people that met three hours a day in the morning and then another class of people that met three hours a day in the afternoon? It's interesting. Right? So, so in Switzerland, the schools were open for the children of the essential workers. I think I that's mean, true here. I think there is some babysitting. There are some babysitting opportunities because there are lots of people where, like, both parents work in the hospital and yeah. grandparents can't do it. Like, like we know some people. I don't know how they're they're handling it. Like, they have grandparents doing it. It's uh, it's a it's a basically an impossible situation. Yeah, and then you're yeah, you know, if you're a healthcare worker, you could be bringing it home, and then your kids get it, and then they give it to, to you know grandma and grandpa and it's yeah you know much higher risk for them and, and you know and not and not just the healthcare workers but the the other essential workers like anybody know, in sanitation, grocery store. sanitation workers grocery stores right yeah. uh, water electric any you know public utilities it's you know yes, the, mta keeping the world police like, the officers the world fire running. department yeah. yes there's there are yeah. tons of essential you know like it's a it's a large you know, it's not a majority of the workforce, but it's a it's a very large part of the workforce. So I think that you know, looking at the optimal way to do schools, but it, it seems to me that the right thing to do, and it's unclear that we're going to necessarily do this. I am sort of expecting just a cold open in September first. Yeah, with you know a promise that sanitation you know work will be they will use stronger chemicals every day rather than, and I'm guessing they won't even you know, increase the number of sanitary, you know, people that work to, to clean the desks. But, but the right thing to do would be to be more open-minded about this. So, so airlines, I mean, yeah, I don't know what's going to happen to them, but I don't see taking an airline trip in the, in the near future. But I wonder if they were to rip half the seats out of the, the airplane, you know. Personally, people- I mean, I mean, as, as a 
physician, healthcare expert, I guess. I think I don't think it's the the fact that people are sitting right next to each other. I think it's the fact that between flights, they clean the floors. That's it, mm. right? They're not wiping down any type of surface. I think that's the problem. And so, yeah, you have people that I mean, they talk about the recycled air. I really, I don't think it's the recycled air. But dear, listen, we have we have people that listen to the show that are more expert in this than me. So I, I definitely don't want to pontificate to them. So actually, let's take your expertise and apply it to things that they care about that are closer to them in that physician, like elective care. So you said my patients currently are, you know, we're taking care of them as best we can with telehealth, but some of them have pressing issues and and, and we, you know, we get them to the offices to take care of them. They're emergent issues we're taking care of. The next thing that's going to happen is the urgent issues, like people with their, sounds trivial, they're accumulating earwax for people where that's a problem. You know what? Their hearing goes, they cannot hear a thing. Right. And then they need to come in. So as much as earwax doesn't seem like an emergency, it's not, but it's urgent. So those patients are accumulating for for, for me and my practice, as, right? I'm an ear, nose, and throat doctor uh, for the listeners that might be joining us for the first time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, that's the urgent care. What about the elective care, right? The people that are coming in for like a septoplasty uh, because, you know, they've had a nasal obstruction for as long as they can remember, right? Something that's that's completely elective. When when can we, are we really going to have to wait the two to three years till the vaccine is, you know, up and no. When when do we expect that to happen? Yeah. So I, I think the best way to think about this is that like we are going to have to shift our concept of like what is acceptable risk because there are risks in our society, you know, over everything. And it is sort of up to the individual to engage in them or not. So for example, so this is a brand new risk and you only get this from like this risk comes from being around other people. Now, if you're immunocompromised, you had that risk anyway in the you know in the flu season of winter, and some people engaged in those you know went to parties and went to baseball games and did all that stuff, and some people didn't. You know, another really good example of risk that we accept is we drive on the highway, right? Like in exchange for being able to get places quickly, we drive on the highway, and so there's a certain risk tolerance that we have, and so people are going to just basically have to accept that like I can either be a you know, just stay in my house and go outside and when, just go to the grocery store and that's it, or I'm going to have to re-engage in society. So so a better way to think about this a sort of thought experiment that I have always done is like, well, let's say there's no vaccine like ever or for 10 years. Like, what do we do then? Yeah. And then, right? Like people can't just shut down their lives forever. Right. At some point, there's going to be enough people that had it that like, you know, the well, how do you get to you don't get but you don't get herd immunity. If we if we all stay shut in for the rest of our life, you don't get herd immunity because like theoretically, nobody else gets because, it. Right. In Wuhan, nobody else is getting it. But we're not completely shut in. We're not. And and there's going to be that, like you said, like there's going to be this natural at some point enough is enough. And you're going to be starting to take greater and greater risks because we're just not equipped to live like this indefinitely. And actually, yeah. the 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 English professor that I put you in touch with that was on the show a couple episodes ago, Kari Nixon, you know, what, what her book was about was about that germ theory came about in the Victorian era when we realized that we were the vectors of many of our own illnesses. So you would think that would drive us apart knowing that, you know, the person sitting across from you was probably the one who gave you tuberculosis, right? but it didn't. 
but it didn't. So, you know, I, I think there's some element of like shock and awe in that like we're, we're, we're jarred. And, and my thought is, and I think this is what you're saying, and tell me if I'm wrong, the minute it's not the, the front and center of the nightly news is when it's not going to be front of mind and when people are going to start letting their guards down and it's going to happen slowly over time. And that's kind of what we're hoping yes. for with flattening the curve, right? Because it's gradually and gradually. And then you have people who are more risk averse who are going to stay inside, people who are less risk averse who, who are probably people who are younger and healthier who are more likely to go outside. And so, you know, those people are getting the herd immunity as they're passing it around. And most of them or many of them are not getting that sick. And right. So I think that you can use the headlines and the nightly news. And the minute it's not front and center in the nightly news is, is when we can start seeing people an, an uptick in elective care. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I think what you're seeing is in New York, like the, the curve is like sort of peaked right now or just over the peak slope and it's it's coming down and it will continue to come down. But uh but what's going to happen is, is that people are going to start letting their guard down and they're going to start engaging in more activities because you, I think what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to start basically re-engaging in life because you can't do this forever. And so the goal was to make sure that the hospitals weren't overwhelmed. And uh, it's been somewhat successful in that, you know, at least now the hospitals are, they are super busy. And whenever I go out on the roads, all I, you know, I see lots of ambulances, but the people aren't dying in the streets in the way that they were in the 1918 flu. Yeah. Right. So they're, they're not, people are getting the, the care that they need. And so, yeah, but, but the expectation then is that this will spread, continue to spread somewhat slowly. Lots of people will be exposed to it. And then it's sort of a, a race for the vaccine to get to market against uh, people going back out there. But what I would expect is that, you know, social distancing, even if it is not in the extreme version that we have now, there will still be lots of it. In other okay. words, you know, I'm thinking gonna, of whether there'll change. be baseball in next, you know, whether there'll be baseball in next spring, whether I would feel comfortable going to a baseball game before having the vaccine or a concert. Well, it depends. If it's a Mets game, then probably because there aren't as many people. There's nobody there going, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But, sorry, uh, sorry, John Mizell. I know you're you're probably listening. <laughs> so, so yeah, no, I would expect a lot of these things to change, and I think that a lot of the culture around travel is going to change. You know, it it really depends. If if six months from now, right, like if if all of our optimism comes true, right? Hey, you want to buy a cruise ship? I'm sure they're going to be relatively inexpensive. Yeah. Um, if all of our optimism comes true, it's certainly possible that 18 months from now, we'll be back to doing all the same things that we were doing before. But the optimism has to be, number one, that we have a vaccine. Number two, that it works and it's you know completely effective in the way that the measles vaccine is. Number three is that this virus, like measles, doesn't mutate, unlike flu, where you have to get revaccinated every year and it you know only works a portion of the time. Like A lot of things have to be true for that. But if not, if even only a subset of those things are true, then a whole bunch of industries that we sort of took, you know, hopping on a flight to Miami for the weekend was a thing that people did. And I think that is unlikely to be the case uh, for a few years. Uh, or, unless, or they might yeah. do it, but the way that it's done is very different, right? You're wearing a mask. You're wearing, you're wiping down your seat. You're Purelling your hands, like you're you're willing to do it, but like, I guess not with my children who like lick the seats, but you know, yeah. adults 
can can travel you know, with taking the proper precautions at some point. Certainly at some point, but, you know, given all of those things, given those additional barriers and given the additional risk that you would take, you yeah. may say, you know what, we're just going to, we're just going to hold up. So the I'm numbers aren't going to be there. Happen. It's not going to be the ease and frequency with which we did it before. Yes, yeah. that's it. That's exactly what I'm saying. And, you know, th- this is not, this is a unique scenario, but lots of scenarios are unique scenarios. So I'll give you a perfect example is um, September 11th, right? Out of the blue, all of a sudden, people took over airplanes and used them as weapons uh, for, you know, intentional terrorist activities. And so if you look at, you know, airplane travel or any sort of travel before September 11th, it was loosey-goosey. You didn't have to, right? You had to go to throw a metal detector and make sure you didn't have a gun, but you could sort of even get out of it. Uh, and now you have to take off your shoes, no water bottles, none of that stuff. Yeah, right? maybe they're going to start taking people's temperatures, and that's the, you know, that's the barrier. Or what? Uh, that's Fauci what I'm saying. That's exactly about, what I'm saying. Right? You is need a, a card, yeah. an immunity card. So the immunity card is a little cagier, yeah, because it creates a sort of two tiered society in which some people can work and some people can't work. Right. So I, I'm yeah. not so sure. I've heard about it, but I'm not so sure that it's going right. And then it creates an incentive for people to actually get the get disease. Sick. Yeah. Then coronavirus parties are going to be a thing. And then we're going to see another spike. Yeah. So because there are I, people who need to get back to work, right? They can't feed their families. They can't pay their rent. They're, yeah, yes. they're going to be yeah, willing yeah, to take a, those risks. Yeah. I mean, the communities that we're really thinking about, there, there are lots of communities that are going to have trouble for, because of this, um, you know, in large part because the unemployment, the operations for the unemployment has been uh, underwhelming. And uh, the $1,200 that, uh, not that that's going to go that far, that the government has promised for many of these populations has, you know, not come yet. And yeah. it's now like week three or week four and April rent was due and, you know, pretty soon May rent is going to be due. I, I, you know, it's unclear whether it's going to come out for that. But, but the real populations are the undocumented because they have no sort of social safety net in terms of uh, the government. You know, if they can't work, you know, they mostly work for cash businesses because that's what they can work for. Those cash businesses have essentially dried up and uh, they don't have any place to turn to and they don't have a lot of means to, you know, pay some of the, you know, monthly, weekly and monthly necessities. So it's, it's interesting, the people that are talking about opening up the economy sooner rather than later and they're explanation for doing it is that there are health risks to economic decline. Put another way, poverty is a social determinant of health. So they're using that as an argument for opening up the economy early, right? Although the ones that are making this argument are not the ones that are typically concerned about social determinants of health in any means, right? Yeah. So I, I think it's interesting that the arguments are coming from that, that side of the aisle. However, at some point, there is an inflection point, right, Right, where the risk of coronavirus, because of some degree of herd immunity, is low enough that the fact that so many people are out of work and that social determinant of health is such a problem that right, it, it has reached an inflection point where the risks of not going back to work outweigh the risks of the coronavirus. So, sure. I mean, you don't want to wait for every single last person to get vaccinated before you send everybody back to work, right? Yeah. And this is what I was saying about like, you know, society is inherent, like there are risks. There's risks when you drive to work. There's risks when you get on the subway. And so this is a an additional 
risk that people are going to have to just live with at some point. And, but we want to get that risk to where it is swallowable and that it's not going around. Because like, I mean, we can see that there's right now in New York, there are over 200,000 cases uh, in that's in New York state. And th- that in no way touches upon the actual number of people that have it. Because I'm sure some of have you heard from your patients that they have a cough and they have, you know, basically all, and you're confident that they have it, but you're not sending them to get tested? They couldn't. This is New York. They yeah. couldn't get tested. Like when sure. it was first coming, you know, when, when, when we were still- There's also no reason know, to. Right. It didn't change. No. I mean, all I did was, because they, a lot of these patients weren't social distancing, all I did was a little education on, yeah. uh, on the importance of it. And- and that was it. Yeah, we didn't because they were fine. They were healthy. You know, you let them know this is what you look for. This is when you worry and call yeah. me if you have any issues. But then, but yeah, but that was it. That was it. But you're right. Tons, tons, tons of undocumented cases. Like I would guess, I don't know, the order of magnitude is 10 times what they're saying, if not 100 times, you know, the yeah. number of confirmed cases. Uh, you know, I just somebody uh, who is an actual epidemiologist, and he said it was like, you know, he, he didn't know either because nobody knows, but it was yeah. like five to 10 to, you know, five or 10 to one. And so yeah. that means, so let's say it's, if we're talking 200,000 right now, that means there's a million or maybe 2 million in New York. And New York is, I mean, it's big, but it's not that big. That means a ton of people are already out there that have this and they're getting over it. Yeah. The other thing that I have asked some experts about was, is this likely, are you likely to get this again? Right. I get the colds all the time. I get the flu. I've had it multiple times in my life, right? Like, but measles, chickenpox, mumps, right? All these things, these are viruses that don't, you know, once you get them, you don't come back. And my understanding is that this is a slowly mutating virus. And the only reason you would get a virus a second time is because the virus mutates into a slightly different version of itself. And so I think there's an expectation that, you know, once you get this, you are not likely to get it again. It's so that, that, Yeah, that seems to be an, an area of conflict. And right, the, you're an economist, I'm an ear, nose and throat doctor. So I don't want to pontificate too much on this point. But but yeah, there seems to be some conflicting information out there. We don't know yet is the answer, just like your many of the answers to the economic questions about when are, we don't know. But I, I don't think we have great reason for, for believing that you're not mounting some immune response that lasts at least for a couple of years. Right? right. At least, at least, even if it's not a, a lifelong immunity, at least enough to get a vaccine out there. Right. So right. I think, I think we're, we're, we're pretty somewhat safe on that trend. One final question. Well, first, is, is there anything else that you, you didn't speak about that you think our physician audience should be aware of? I think we were pretty yeah, thorough. Yeah. Mom called me today. She told me that she loves me more. So my, my question was actually going to be <laughs> given that she's trapped at home. Right. She all she does is she goes for walks around the block, um, trapped at home with dad who's working, right? Working his tail off because he's an accountant. So she doesn't have as much to do as she normally does. Do you think she's gonna listen to this episode? Because after the first couple, she determined that it wasn't for her. So even though it's her only two sons on this episode, do you think she's gonna listen to it? Yeah, yeah, because I'm on it. So she'll definitely (laughs) listen to this episode. Yeah. And how do you think she gets her groceries? So if she wants to eat, she'll listen to this episode. We've all just to be for the audience out there. Just he, kidding, lives, Mom. he lives much closer than I do. He's like eight minutes away and I'm like 35 minutes away. So 
That's why that's why he's he's responsible for the groceries. So you're a good son. You're a good son. You're All right, right. Well, thank you. Thank you for appearing on my show and uh, not being too patronizing. I appreciate it for change. Uh, moderately patronizing was what I was going for. Did I achieve it? <laughs> yeah. Hit the nail on the head. Hit the nail on the head. And, uh, you know, kiss your children for me. All right. You too. That was Dr. Bradley Block at the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. He can be found at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question for a previous guest or have an idea for a future episode, send a comment on the webpage. Also, please be sure to leave a five-star review on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next time on the Physician's Guide to Doctoring.